Well, what do you think I want to talk to you about this morning? Oh. How many are learning to love that word? There's so much to it, as you're no doubt discovering as we talk about it. And this morning I want to talk to you about <clears throat> the, the priority of koinonia. I also want to use the word community to translate it. That's right, I have one too. That's okay. Community really is a priority. It, it, it ought to be. Uh, we, we see in that passage in Acts chapter 2 that the early church, they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to uh, koinonia. They were devoted to being together, to breaking bread, to uh, spending time with each other, even daily. This was a major issue for the early church, and uh, they kind of set the pattern for the rest of the church. I want us to look at three familiar passages uh, that address this same issue. In Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn there, the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 really are the key to the whole balance of of the letter. And he talks to us about um, really commitment, doesn't he? Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. So if the other things aren't there, you're you're not going to ever know God's will for your life. You see, that the whole, the whole issue is commitment to him first. Everything flows from that. And once I'm committed to him, really, uh, then I begin to see and understand the things he's, he wants to do in me and through me. Among those things, there's a, a little short discussion of spiritual gifts. But in the context of that discussion, there's a description of the church, and Paul uses the metaphor of a what? Anybody remember? Body. Very good. So just look with me. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one, each, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That's the key phrase. Use the metaphor of a body with its many parts to describe the church. And just as our human body has lots of different parts, members, if you will, uh, and, and all of them together make up the body, so also you and I make up the body of Christ. It is certainly at this local congregational level. And then he does a short discussion of, uh, of spiritual gifts and such. I won't read those, but I just want you to see this. It's all in the context of community. It's all in the context of koinonia, that we're a family, we're a body, uh, we're a fellowship, all those things. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You see the same thing, again, in a context of spiritual gifts, Paul's lengthy discussion there. Drop down with me to verse 12 of chapter 12. He says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. 
And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then there's a discussion he, that follows where, where he says, that, you know, one part can't say I don't have need of another. We all need one another, hearkening back to his words in Romans 12:5. My body need the feet. My head need the feet. The feet need the head, and, and vice versa. Uh, the whole body needs the heart, lungs, the nervous system. So if we're, if we're minus any of those parts, then the body is, uh, is uh, howbled. It's, it's weakened. It can't function maximally. But again, the whole idea is that, is that we are a body and we are in fellowship. Community is essential. Where do I fit in the body? Am I a hand? Am I a foot? Am I a head? Am I an ear? Am I, a, am I an eye? Am I a kidney? Am I a liver? Am I an intestine? What am I? Where do I fit in the body of Christ? Where do I fit in the community? That's imperative for every one of us to consider and to um, discover. Ephesians chapter 4, turn there. Again, Paul uses the same metaphor. Verse 11. He says, it was he, meaning Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So Christ has given gifts to the church in, in terms of these gifted people. The point would be, verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Again, the metaphor of a body until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, how many want to be mature? Well, it's imperative that we're all functioning together in the body if I'm going to mature. If I'm going to mature in my faith, if I'm going to mature in God's call in my life, if I'm going to mature in the things that God has prepared for me, uh, both to do and to be done through my life, uh, it, it, it's imperative that I'm part of this family, part of this community, an active part. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. In other words, we're not going to be stupid anymore. We're not going to be able to just be swayed by anybody and everybody. You know, stuff sounds good. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. But as we're part of the community and we're growing together, we're maturing together in the family, then we're going to be growing in, in our knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, <clears throat> grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each, you might want to underline that last section, as each part does its work. Implicit in that is the fact that we've all got to be participating. We're all part of the family. We're all part of the community. We're all part of the koinonia, if you will. 
Now, having said that, it's important again that we realize that that very word koinonia expresses two things. It expresses, first of all, the relationship that you and I as believers have with God. And secondly, the relationship that you and I as believers have with each other. We have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with each other. We share a common life with Christ. We share a common life with each other. That's the truth. That's the doctrine. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible tells us. That's a fact. And and, and now the reality is to live out that in our experiential life. We began to talk about that last time. This is simply the point of the metaphors uh, used by Jesus and by Paul. Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, doesn't he? I'm the vine, you're the branches, he tells them, his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't bear fruit unless you are in the vine. And so this, this union with Christ, just like a branch is united to the vine, and it draws its life from the vine, you and I draw our life. Now you say, well, I, I don't always feel like it. You may not feel like it, but that's the reality. That's the truth. You have to keep going back to the truth, saying, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. This is why his strength, his virtue, his power is mine. I share in that. And you're not going to share in it. You're not going to realize it unless first you know it and you believe it. And likewise, we share common life with each other. We're all members of the body. We're all, it's imperative that we, again, grasp that just as we grasp that we share a common life with Christ. This is the point of those metaphors, uh, the vine and the branches by Jesus and the body that Paul uses that metaphor. This is the truth. This is objective fact. We share a common life in Christ, whether we realize it or not, and we share a common life with each other that's why Paul says in Romans 12:5 again, each member belongs to all the others. You can't, you can't really separate us. Spiritually, you can't separate us. We belong to each other. We're, we're bonded together. It's like, it's like to separate my arm from my body, I have to cut it off. It's, it's, it's integrated into my body. And that's what he's describing. We belong to all the others. That's how intimate our relationship is. And that's why when you do something, uh, I, it affects me. I do something that affects you. Paul says over in Corinthians, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. We all feel it. When my, when my, when my big toe is sore, my whole body is aware of it. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, it doesn't take much, does it? So we understand that. Now, because this is all true, we must recognize must recognize the priority of community. What must we recognize? It's a priority. If you're a Christian, community must take priority in your life. I'm a part of this body. I can't isolate myself. I can't deprive the rest of the body of what God has given me that I can contribute. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have much to offer. Well, whatever you got, bring it. Beloved, because this is true, you must recognize the priority of community and you must be willing to share experientially 
not only with God, but with each other. In other words, we've got to be involved. We've got to be involved. All of us have been on the periphery at some point. All of us have opted out of serving in ministry at some point. And, and your life becomes stagnant. The, the only way to, to keep the fire burning, the only way to stay fervent is you're in community. And sometimes it, it can be a hassle, huh? And, but it, re, it requires everything. It just requires total commitment. Now remember, we talked about this and we said that the various, the various uses of that word koinonia, that New Testament word, convey two related meanings. One, to share together in the sense that, uh, of joint participation. We, are, we jointly participate in the body and we jointly participate in the mission. And secondly, we share with each other. Share together, share with. Share with in the sense of giving what we have to others. Giving spiritually and as well materially. We live in a time, we live in an age not unlike all throughout the history of man. And the issues that plague man are common, no matter what point of history you live in, no matter where you live and what part of the world. And the issues very simply are this. Personal insignificance and or personal insecurity and a great loneliness. I don't care where you go, people feel inadequate. I don't care where you go, people feel insignificant. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And, and, and however they say that, whatever words they use to frame that in, the sentiment is the truth. People are afraid. They're insecure. Consi- am I going to be safe? Is it going to be okay? There's always this vague sense of dis-ease under the surface. And not only that, you compound that by the fact that people are, quite frankly, lonely. I mean, witness this, uh, this whole craze with MySpace and... All these uh, internet things. People, people are craving to, to, be, to know and to be known. That's, that's just part of our, our condition as imperfect, fallen, sinful people. We have this deficit in us. And it evidences itself in those arenas. And because that's true, God has provided the solution to all of that. More than ever, I believe the church needs to recapture the priority of community. Where are we finding community? On the Internet? Or are we finding community where God has designed for us to find it? Where God has meant for us to be built up, to contribute to the building up of one another, the encouragement, the strengthening of one another? That's the church. Would you agree with me? that it would be, it's vital, it's a vital part of the good news of Jesus Christ that every single person matters to God. Is that a fair statement? 
Can you just walk up to any person on the street and say, you matter to God? Can you say that with confidence? Absolutely. The Bible is very clear on that. How do we know that? What verse does, does everybody know? Every, just about everybody knows this verse. What verse is it? John 3.16. God so loved the that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. John writes over in his first epistle that, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Paul says he died once for all, once for all time, once for all men, once for all sin. Every person matters to God. He knows every person. He knows every person's name. He has a personal love for each one of us. Think about that. This is no more clearly exemplified than in the episode with this guy who climbed the sycamore tree recorded in Luke chapter 19. Remember that? Who was that? Zacchaeus. Here's this, here's this, this tax collector, hated member of his community, a Jewish renegade. Here's about Jesus. Jesus had come to town, and, and, and Zacchaeus, we're told, was a short man, so he couldn't see over the crowds that lined the street to see Jesus. So he climbs a tree overhanging the street so he can get a good view. Totally obscured. Jesus stops right under the tree and says, Zacchaeus! Can you imagine that? How did he know his name? He knows everybody's name. He cares about every single person. Last week, there's a family in our church, Gene and Jennifer Elling, and they have a little daughter. And they came in, and they came up the stairs, and I greeted them and, you know, acknowledged them, called them by name, Gene, hi, Gene, hi, Jennifer, how are you, and so forth and so forth. And their daughter was with them, and so they walked past, going down the hall, the little girl tugs on mommy's sweater and says, Mommy, Mommy, he knows us. <laughs> she thought that was cute. Why do we learn people's names? Well, one of the reasons I think is because it shows that we care. I care about you. I want to know your name. Wonder who you are. It was this direct personal approach of Jesus that so quickly and so wonderfully captured the hearts of many of those people who were hurt and who were alone. He knows me. He knows my name. He knows who I am. He knows every detail of my life. He cares. What does Peter say? Cast your cares upon him because he what? He cares for you. That's the truth. Here at last is somebody who really cared for them as individual persons. And Jesus calls these individuals important not to stay in isolation, which would be our normal tendency. Calls us not to stay in isolation, but to join this new community of God's people. Be part of the family. Be part of the family. Not in name only, but with your life. He called the twelve to share their lives. To share their lives with him and with each other. The first twelve were kind of a microcosm of the church. They're, they're the model, if you will. They were to live every day in uh, rich and diverse fellowship 
emphasized by losing their independence and learning interdependence. Let me say that again. Losing independence and learning interdependence. My arm is not allowed to go do whatever it wants. It's got to comport with the body. It's got to participate and function as part of the whole. They were to share everything. They were to share joys. They were to share sorrows. They were to share pains and possessions. They were to become the community of Christ the King, a whole new community. There was a stand in stark contrast to the culture, a community that was to evidence the, the blessings, the resource, the grace, the love, the goodness, the kindness that was not available in the community around them, in the world, in the Roman Empire. In Jesus' three years of intimate relationship with the disciples, he really does give us a model for the church. He really does. He loved his disciples. He cared for their needs. He taught them. He corrected them. He stimulated their faith. He instructed them concerning the kingdom of God. He sent them out in his name. He encouraged them. He listened to them. He watched them. He guided them. He told them to do the same for each other. That really is a picture of the church, isn't it? And when, when believers get a hold of this, when we realize this, this idea, this God-given quality of a sharing community, it will speak with great relevance and great credibility, I believe, and spiritual power to the world today. Is the church really relevant in the world today? Does the world stand up and take note of the church Does the world look to the church and say, what do you say? We want to hear from you. No. Why is that? Because we're all over the map. We're splintered. We're not together. Jesus meant for those 12, and then all the people would come to him through them and through their ministries to be together. Taught them, trained them, urged them, comforted them, and told them to go and do do likewise. Make disciples. And it's only when the church today gets a hold of this that we're going we're gonna to be making an impact on the world rather than being mocked and laughed at. I mean, I don't, I don't mind to be being, being laughed at and mocked, but I want to be mocked and laughed at because people recognize that, that I do have something to say. Not because I'm a caricature. Ridiculous. Acts chapter 2. Turn there with me real quick. familiar passage again to us. We've been looking at this. Verse 42, speaking of those first century Christians, they devoted themselves. Look at the words Luke uses. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. What What are we devoted to? Ask yourself, what am I really devoted to? Where am I putting my energy, my time, my resources? What am I devoted to? These people were devoted. Yeah, they had jobs. They had businesses. They had families. They had all the same kinds of things that we have. But community took priority in their life. 
And because they were so devoted, everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Here's the, here's the culture watching this community and watching what God is doing in the midst, watching how these people are treating each other. In fact, it's said of the early church, the comment from the outsiders were, as they watched the early church, they said, behold how they love one another. Look at their devotion to each other. They weren't just all doing their own thing. This idea of koinonia, this idea of community, Beloved, we just have to get a hold of it. Otherwise, we continue to be irrelevant. Powerless. We're not going to make an impact. We just end up spinning our wheels. There's power when God's people are together on the same page. Where two or more of you are gathered in my name, I'm in your midst. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verse 32. We see the same thing. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They're all on the same page, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What a picture. What a, you can't imagine people looking at the church, looking and, and saying, wow, look at those people. Look at those people. And you can't help but be drawn to people like that. You can't help it. It's kind of like, irresistible grace you can't resist it it's like a magnet it's like a moth to the flame if you will (coughs) those people worship together they pray together they work together they witness together they shared their possessions with each other the reality of their mutual love clearly was a rich expression of the joy of the salvation that they each knew in their own life God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. And the joy of that salvation uh, had, to, had to give rise to this mutual love for one another and, and to marvel at what God had done, not only in their lives individually, but in the lives of, their, of, of the people that they were around them. And that led, of course, to a tremendous impact on the world around them, too. In fact, Jesus said that... Uh, There was one thing that was to mark his people. One thing, particularly, that was to be the hallmark of his disciples. Can you think of what that is? Love. In John, John's gospel, uh, John quotes Jesus in chapter 13. He says, all men will know that you're my disciples, uh, as, uh, because you hate one another. (laughs) Because you're constantly fighting with each other. 
Because each of you are doing your own thing. No. How will all men know that you're my disciples? That you have love for one another. And love is not just an emotion. Love is action. It's action. And he prayed that the loving unity of their lives together would bring others to belief in him in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Look at these verses. Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How's the world going to know except that they see transformed people? And what's the hallmark of transformation? It's love. And not a self-serving love. An others-serving love. I'm going out, I'm reaching out beyond myself. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to go the extra mile or two miles or three miles. I'm willing to lay my life down for my brother. This does not happen in the world. You say, oh, I, I, I know people who do that. No, they don't. There's always strings attached. There's always a quid pro quo. I promise you, it's always trading. I tell married couples, I said, your marriage is, is, a, is an environment where you learn to outgive each other. And most couples think, oh, that's wonderful, that sounds so nice. They don't realize they're trading. They've been trading since the very beginning, and they're continually trading so that when the other person quits, quits giving, the, the other one pulls back. They were never giving in the first place. They're always just simply trading. You see, what happened is in that early church, they, they, the, the world around them looked at these Christians. They looked at these people. They looked at them in koinonia. They looked at them in community. They looked at them in fellowship. They looked at them at their, at their sharing together and sharing with. And what was the result? God added to their number daily those who were being saved. We're attracted to those kinds of things. Why? Because they address the deficits in our life. I have these empty spaces in my life and, and no one can fill them but, but God and God fills them through His people. This is why you and I have to recognize and realize and get a hold of this whole concept of community. If we're His people. In their commitment to Christ, to one another, that early church became the visible manifestation of Christ on earth. Think about that. Jesus, come down here. I want to talk to you. We're, we're Christ. We're the body of Christ now. We're the body of Christ. God's power is meant for God's people. Not just for individual believers, but for God's people as a whole. God manifests His power. I love Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, when brothers live together in unity... It's in that environment when we are together in unity that the Lord commands His blessing. Just think. We're all, we're all moving together. We're all in unison. Wow. You know, by itself, a, a snowflake is very delicate and very fragile. A snowflake can't do very much, can it? 
but a whole bunch of them together can stop traffic, can't they? Get the idea? Together. The forming of the church into this new community of God's people was for a much broader reason than just for the church itself. We don't exist just for ourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we exist so that God will bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. It starts with us. We're the vanguard, if you will, of his larger purpose, of his larger plan, of bringing everything under his lordship. Would you agree with me that without God, our society is sick and falling apart? A godless society, one without God. It's sick, and it just gets sicker and sicker and sicker. I mean, you have to shake your head at the stuff that we see and hear on the Internet, on TV, in, in the media. You just, you just go, when is it going to end? It's not going to end. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Paul says in the, in, the, in, the, in the last days, things are going to get worse. Men's love is going to grow colder. They're going to become more and more wicked. We're the antidote. We're the antidote. Every part, every particle of this world has been polluted by man's sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. Every part. Nothing is exempt. Every part of this world is in the power of the evil one, Jesus says. Paul writes in Romans 8 that creation itself is in bondage to decay. And it groans, creation itself groans, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. For its redemption, the creation groans. He personifies creation. And it was for this very reason that Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring about reconciliation, to bring about healing, to bring about restoration. One day, totally and perfectly, but right now, substantially. You and I can experience substantial reconciliation, substantial restoration. We can make a difference in our culture. But, beloved, uh, we've got to be together. You've got to be together. God has chosen the church as his agent to accomplish this great plan. But we first have to experience this in our own ranks. I can't speak to the world unless I am fulfilling God's command just within the context of our own relationships. And as you and I become united, as our church becomes a more caring community of God's people, marked by love, we'll begin to see a more substantial healing in our community. We'll make an impact. People's lives are going to be changed. People will be drawn in. More and more people. More and more people's lives affected for the, for the kingdom. Once we see that the church is to be God's agent for redemption in this world, we can understand why John, why Luke, why Paul, why Peter, all the other New Testament writers were so persistent and emphatic about the need for believers to be of one mind and one heart. We could just all be on the same page. Until the kingdom of God can be demonstrated in our relationships with love towards one another, We have nothing credible to say to an unbelieving and broken world. Simply that. We we don't have a testimony. Jesus saved me. So what? 
So what? What difference does it make? In John's Gospel, again, in chapter 17, Jesus prays for for uh, his disciples. He prays for us, every succeeding generation of the church, that we would be one. That's his burden for the church. If I can use that word, burden. That's his burden, that we would be one. We'd be united. We'd be together. We'd be in agreement. We'd be a community. Would you say that the nature of the Trinity itself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is a community of perfect love? Yeah. The reality of God among us will only be seen not just in our right doctrines, as necessary as those things are, but the reality of this God of love will be seen in our midst as the church itself becomes a community of love. We have terrific pockets of love in our church. Terrific pockets of community. But not everybody is involved. I had a meeting yesterday with the, with the elders of our church, and this was a, a subject of discussion. How can, how can the church grow? How can we be more healthy? How can, how can we better shepherd the congregation? And the elders have a significant part. We're strategizing how can the elders be more involved in all that process. The reality is that probably 40%, 40% of our congregation is involved in any kind of significant community. Where's the other 60%? How do we, how do we affect, how do we affect God's purposes when over half of us, 60% of us, are not involved in community. Instead of allowing ourselves to be divided and or distracted, the church must seek seriously. Beloved, you and I have to seriously sit down and say, what is important, really? However difficult it may be, that we maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we're together, one mind, one heart. And it's difficult. It stresses us. Don't always feel like it. But I'm not going to be a victim of my feelings. Because, beloved, in no other way will God's reality and His rule be seen except through His church. It's, it's just as simple as that. Our unity in Christ is, or certainly should be, an expression of the very life of God. Think about that. The church is, or should be, literally, the Word made flesh for today. Other people should be able to look at our fellowship of love and say, that is what God is like. See, that's the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. You can argue doctrine all day long. You can argue apologetics all day long. But the the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel is the love of God expressed in and through his body. Jesus touched people. Jesus ministered his love and his grace and his power to people. 
You and I can do the same things. He said it. He said, he said that you will do these things and you'll do greater things. But the idea, the context of that is if we're only, if we're all together. God's love among God's people, again, is the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. That's why, that's why discipleship, being a disciple, is best lived out in community. Well, I can be a disciple over here. You know, I, I, I just kind of do my own thing. Oh, you're cheating us, and you're being cheated. You're losing out. We're all losing out because you're isolated. Community, koinonia, fellowship, sharing together, sharing with so I'm not sure I have much to share. Let's spend some time together. Let's find out. I'll bet you I can find lots that you could share. Give me 20 minutes. You see, a purely individualistic approach is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And for Christians, sadly, in many churches, fellowship means little more than just kind of casual acquaintance or weekend attendance at a service, or some perfunctory interaction. It doesn't really go beyond that. They never really learn to, to, to share their lives. They never really learn to give of themselves. They never really learn to allow people to give into their lives. There's no iron sharpening iron. It's just a perfunctory exercise. When Jesus drew men and women into discipleship, He required a depth of relationship that was much more demanding. And as a result, these people grew to be much more enriched and powerful. You see, as you give, so shall you receive. The more I give, God says, look, you can't outgive me. I'm going to pour my grace. I'm going to pour my love. I'm going to pour my power into your life by my spirit that lives in you. Most of the time we disqualify ourselves. Oh, I'm going to be exhausted. No, God's, God energizes us. God does this. And we, we take that step of faith. If the church is to become a community of God's people, it means more than just singing the same hymns and songs and choruses. It means more than just uh, praying the same prayers and just putting a few buckets, bucks in the bucket and, and so forth. It means much more than that. If the church has become a community of God's people, truly, it will involve the full commitment of our lives. Full commitment. All that we have to one another. You have to ask yourself this question. Where do I fit? What part of the body am I? How has God designed me? What, what's my participation? What has God called me to? What privilege do I have to serve and to demonstrate His love to others? Beloved, it's only as we lose our lives that we find them. Isn't that true? It's only when we're willing to lose our lives that we really find them. And so bring the life of Jesus to others. He, he trained his disciples in a crash course. How many years did Jesus have with them? Do you remember? Roughly three years. In that three-year period of time, he set out to do a number of things. He set out to win their hearts... He set out to win their trust, 
to instruct their minds, indeed to bend their wills, to influence them, to bind them together in this new society and to equip them with the power and gifts of his spirit. He knew that his time with them was short. He knew that he had to send them into a hostile world which would oppose them, which would persecute them and seek to destroy them. Jesus knew there was no time to lose. There's no time to lose. It's no different today. We have to enter into the battle, if you will, but not alone. And although Jesus had come to bring them life and life to the full, he came to fill their empty hearts with his love and his joy. All that being true, he still warned them of times of suffering. He said, a time is coming when you will be scattered. In this world, you will have trouble. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. All men will hate you because of me. Many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Those words were meant not just to incite them. They weren't meant to manipulate those early disciples. Those words weren't meant uh, just as some empty threat. No, the persecution of the early church, when you read church history, was appalling in its cruelty and its severity. You read about the lives of these people and how they died. And you just, you just shudder. And it was only the love of Christ controlling them that enabled them to conquer in His name, to persevere. You and I have no idea what it's like to suffer for Christ in, in the sense that, that many, many Christians are around the world. God's grace welled up so greatly in the hearts of these people who are absolutely committed that they're able to praise him with inexpressible joy in the midst of these appalling trials. I mean, just think, you're in a difficult marriage. Just in a difficult marriage. Do you praise God? Do you have this inexpressible joy that wells up in you so that you praise God? Thank you, God. For being a light in this marriage. Thank you that, that I can be a, a light and, and love my husband or my wife with the love of Christ. Or do we typically complain and whine and moan and look around for a better deal? Throughout this last century, the 20th century, and on into this century, countless millions of Christians have been and are being imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and dying simply for their faith, just because they're Christians. Vast numbers suffer today as we're sitting here in the comfort of this sanctuary. Our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering terrifically. You just go go on one of our short-term missions trips. And you see the condition in which three-quarters of the world lives. We just got, uh, got news back from our Vietnam team, and they went to uh, a section of, I think it was Saigon they were in, and uh, I forget what city they were in, uh, talking about the, 
the incredibly, incredibly horrible conditions in which these people were living. Dehumanizing. And yet they, were, they, 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 they found fellowship. There's a little enclave of, of believers. And these people were joyful. And our, and our team's gagging, gagging at the smell of sewage in the street. At the, at the vision of poverty that these people are living in. But the, the joy that they have. Because they're together. And I think that we see these things and we read about them and we, we know them and, and, and we look at the lives of these people and, and, and they patiently endure these trials. Patiently. And, and they do so with considerable faith and considerable love and gentleness and humility. And I don't know about you, but this, it just serves as a rebuke to the modern church in the West with its complacency, its coldness, its selfishness, its apathy. I'm convinced there are more and more signs that even, even those of us who live in a comparatively safe environment, we, we need to be alert, church. We need to be alert to the sufferings that almost surely lie ahead for us. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just you see the handwriting on the wall. You say, we live in America. We have a constitution that guarantees our freedom of religion. They're shredding the constitution as we sit here this morning. I just bring you action alerts just to be just to know what's going on in our local California legislature. And if the truth be known, most people don't even care. How many of us actually read the action alert that I put in the bulletins the last couple of weeks? How many made the calls? How many got involved? The majority? I mean, that's just one small sliver. We say we care. Do we really? And that's just only in one, one area. How much more the life of the church? I, I, I'm convinced that we need to be prepared. I believe with all my heart that, that and I pray that it never happened, but I believe in all my heart, that uh, there is warfare, spiritual warfare going on, and it is going to get more and more and more severe. I'm, I'm almost afraid for my son to get married and have children. I'm almost afraid for that. For what kind of world, what kind of culture uh, my grandchildren, should I ever have any, will grow up in. I mean, look at the downward course of our culture now. Christians are openly, openly persecuted. And the majority of the church just sits and twiddles. Francis Schaeffer said the church today 
is more concerned with its own personal peace and affluence, individual Christians, rather than the mandate to make disciples and to be a community of, of love and power. It's priority. It's priority. We must be committed to deepening our own personal knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. We must be committed to that. We must be committed to growing in our faith in our Heavenly Father. We must learn how to be filled with the Holy Spirit continuously, as Paul says. And above all, we must resolve our differences, forgive and be forgiven, and renew our commitment to one another out of love for Christ, for Christ's sake. Beloved, it was the Christian community that withstood the persecution of the first century. It was the Christian community. It was Christians who were together, supporting one another, encouraging one another, praying, loving, that impacted that Roman culture eventually. And it is Christian communities around the world today that overcome these increasing pressures. We're not immune. When Christians come together in the name of Jesus, He promises to be there in their midst with special power, strengthening us, lifting us up, enabling us. Together, you and I and the church, we can lift up the shield of faith We can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. We can, only if we're doing it together. And beloved, today is the day to act. Not next week, not tomorrow, today. You have to make a decision today. Am I in or am I out? Now, I realize that saying these things probably is going to be painful and offensive for some people, and and, uh, you'd much rather go find a, a nicer church where they'll leave you alone. (laughs) Tragic to be left alone, to do your thing. Today's the day. Today, come on, let's act. Let's step it up. Jesus decided that community should come before suffering. Why? Because in that context of suffering, unless we're in community, we can't assist each other and others when the necessity arises. This is why we have small groups. This is why we have our mini churches. This is why we so emphasize community and fellowship. This is why uh, we've broken the church up into districts. It makes community and fellowship much easier, if you will. If a time does come when we're going to have to uh, deal with these issues in a a much more uh, open way, it's good to know who you can trust. You don't have to go way across town. You've got community right there in your own neighborhood. We're trying to stage the church to facilitate community, facilitate fellowship. All of our elders are assigned in the districts they live. That's their district. They're the elders in that district. Why? To facilitate this. Not some legalistic prescription. We must understand the importance of community. We must feel the need to strengthen our relationships with each other. 
In addition to God's covenant with us, a covenant with our brothers and sisters is the best insurance we can get for times of hardship. And those of us who who have had that support and been part of that support and leaned on people, had people lean on us, we understand the richness and the joy that comes from that, of seeing people's lives saved and helped and strengthened. You have to, you have to say, you know, no more, no more superficial fellowship for me. It, it just won't do enough, do anymore. It, it's not good enough. I have to dig deeper. I have to commit myself. We need to see ourselves as members of one family, one body, eternally united in Christ and eternally united with each other. We must make that unity real now. Now. Strong, loving, mutual commitment and fellowship. It's as simple as that. Jesus says, follow me. You know what he said to those people? He said, well, I have to go do this first. And I have to go do that. He just kept moving. The rich young ruler. He, Jesus, Jesus loved him. He was saddened by the fact that that young guy would not follow him. Jesus kept moving. He didn't slow down for anybody. Either you're with me or you're against me. It's not just you just can't pay lip service to him. None of us can. We, we have to be involved. I'm part of his body. His hands worked. His feet worked. His, his ears worked. Everything. And that's who we are. We're the body of Christ. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your body. Lord, we... We, we can be sluggish, and we can, and you know, let other things get in the way of our participation in your body. Lord, I pray that this morning as we come to your table, remembering you, celebrating you, and expressing gratitude for your great sacrifice, Lord, that we understand that You've called us. You've called us into this life, into this relationship, into this ministry. That our lives be marked by love and service, giving, sharing, by commitment to you, to your kingdom, to your will. I pray, Father, that all of our hearts would be turned more fully towards you today into your will. And I ask in Jesus' name, because you said I could. Amen.